Good morning to you all, and welcome to anybody who's maybe a, a visitor or a guest here or a visitor or guest joining us online. My name is Dave, and I'm our lead pastor here. You know, I got my first job a month before I turned 14, flipping burgers at A&W. I would get home smelling like a French fry, and I didn't really mind. I liked French fries. It's nothing a shower couldn't fix. Um, it had its perks, too, and, and, and the most significant perk it has is that they paid me. <laughs> so that was good. I think it was $5.40 an hour or something like that at that time. But the uniform, oh, the uniform. Black shoes, black pleated pants, a, a tucked-in golf shirt, uh, a hairnet, a visor, a name tag, and an apron. There is no way you could make that look cool. No way on earth. It's a uniform that says, I am going to make you some onion rings. That's what it says to the world. Now, fashions come and go, and yet clothing, since the time of the ancient world, clothing has been an indicator of social standing. Y you know, uniforms are much quicker to read than a resume. They create expectations when you walk in the room wearing a certain uniform. And in the ancient world, cl uh, uh, clothing was the primary way of marking out a person's social standing, where they fit in the society. Like, are people looking down on me or looking up at me? That was determined and, and shown outwardly by the clothing that you wore. That's still true today, isn't it? In a lot of ways. And we still want to know, where do I stand? in relation to others. And, and so Peter actually, he draws on this clothing imagery in our, in our last text that we're going to look out at from our first Peter series. And, and he does so, he draws on this imagery in order to help us reimagine our God-given status. So let's pray as we begin today. Father God, as, as I listened to this text and wrestled with it this week, I'm just so thankful with the things that you had to say to me. And I want to trust God that you have lots to say to your people gathered at Summit Drive today for all of those who are looking to you. And I just pray, Father, that by your Spirit's power, by your work in us, that our hearts and minds would just be captivated again by who you are and what you're calling us to, who you say we are as well. Amen. Now, just before we dive into our text, uh, we're looking at 1 Peter 5 today. Um, especially if you're just joining us for the first time, we're actually closing out our series today called Living in Hope. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and it was written by Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. And he's, he's writing to a group of Christians, which is, well, basically in modern-day Turkey, kind of in the middle of that country now, and he is reminding them over and over that you are foreigners, you are exiles, you are outsiders even in your hometown. That's kind of the, the backbeat of everything that, that Peter is saying in this book. And, and last week, we saw that we shouldn't be surprised then if we bear insult, if we experience pushback because of our commitments to Jesus and the Jesus way. But the response isn't to push back, we see. It's actually to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and to keep on doing good for the sake of the world around us. 
And now Peter, in chapter 5, is showing us what that will require. So let's, let's hear this final chapter together. I invite you to open your Bibles to chapter 5 of 1 Peter. And listen for that clothing language as well. He writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he will lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, which is just a code word for Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now this text, it divides into two main parts with humility being the key of each. So part one, humility in the community of faith. Here's a few things that we need to know. Number one, first, elders. Uh, the word here is presbyteros, and, it, and it, it simply refers to those who are older, or, or it could, but almost certainly, and almost all the scholars I read agree that this is referring to those who are leaders among the people of God, those who have been recognized by the community and given responsibility to to care for the flock under your care, as, uh, as Peter says. Second thing, you'll notice Peter calls himself a fellow elder. He, he doesn't call himself an apostle here. He started the letter that way. He could have. Why? Well, it might have given the impression that he's pulling rank. And this gives, I guess, the impression, really, and the sense of responsibility to the leaders and to protect against any vile authoritarianism. A sort of power tripping that it just seems natural for humans to slide into. And so P Peter, he's modeling this mutuality in his language about himself with the other leaders of the community. Third, Peter also says he's a witness of Christ's suffering with those who share in the glory to be revealed. Why does he mention this? It's because the suffering of Jesus and then the vindication that comes with his resurrection that's now the paradigm of the Christian life. That's, that's the shape of, the pattern for how we live. And that's the story, you might say, of self-giving and of trusting ourselves to God that shapes 
how we live. And so his instructions, well, verses 2 to 3, look at them again. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Some of you right remember that after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, um, he, he has this meeting with Peter. Peter had denied Jesus even knowing him three times right before the, his crucifixion. And now Jesus comes to Peter and asks him this question, do you love me? Asks it three times. And each time Peter responds, yes, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus' response to that is, then feed my sheep. The word pastor means shepherd. That's, that's just like a, 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 a literal translation of that. It just means shepherd. You know, having grown up on a farm tending animals when I was a young person, I, I have a sense of why this farming language is so meaningful. See, it's possible for pastors to take really different metaphors as their primary image of what their job is. Is about you might have like revolutionary leader and I and I picture you know William Wallace from Braveheart and um, you know he's inspiring people he's he's offering vision he's leading the charge and, and I, I think muscles and a no nonsense attitude and a philosophy of life that just says let's get her done okay um, or we might have the kind of like CEO picture a, a person whose main work seems to be like strategizing the next move and calculated and, and pretty classy like i i picture a turtleneck with like a sports blazer and a podcast and a super shiny website all right uh, it could also be something like a a teacher a, a kind of sage master of biblical language and world philosophy type the image then is is of a lecture podium or of a pulpit the picture is a microphone it's a stage okay sure but you know what's less sexy than that? It's a person in gumboots walking around the hills with a sheepdog. Smells like a campfire. And it's this farmer looking for strays, tending to wounds, protecting, feeding. And that image of shepherd, it's not nearly as glamorous. And yet pastoring, yes, it will include visioning. It includes leadership and planning. It includes thinking and teaching. But it's not about those things. Those things are all there to serve the bigger thing, which is caring for God's people, caring for the flock. This is a far less than cool picture for the pastor. The shepherding is, it's a protecting image, and it protects the church against being about image, about pastors seeking celebrity status. And much more importantly, it's key because this is how God provides to care for his people. This is the key to a, a growing and thriving community. And perhaps most importantly, the image of shepherd is so important because it's what God is like. Repeatedly through the scriptures, God refers to himself as a shepherd. You remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Here in the text, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He seems to really like this image, hey? And now, I often point this out at Christmas time, is that the shepherds are out, they're doing what? Tending their flocks by night, and the angel of the Lord appears to them. And one of the things I point out at Christmas time is that shepherds are kind of on the very bottom of the barrel in terms of their social status. They are 
lowly type. And, and I've never noticed it until this week. I just didn't put the two and two together. God loves to call God's self a shepherd, and shepherds are at the bottom of the pile, socially speaking. God relates to the lowly ones. God loves to, to socially associate with those whose job is seen as kind of dirty and at the very bottom, the marginalized. That's what God says God is like. That's a humble role. That's a lowly role. Like there's this time when two of Jesus' followers, um, they're walking along with Jesus and they pull him aside and say, we would really like to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come in power. What are they asking for? They're asking for position. They're asking for influence. They want to be the leaders. They want to be the top dogs. And the other disciples catch wind of this. What did he say? Did I hear him right? And there's this big meltdown. There's this, I can imagine them almost in fisticuffs. And they're posturing for position. And then Jesus just stops the whole conversation and says this, you know that those who are regarded as, as rulers along, among the Gentiles, they lord it over them, over the people. And they're high officials. They exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Jesus' leaders live in a different way. Listen to what he says next. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus is not only revealing his approach to life. He's revealing the very heart of God. That is what God is like. The one who comes to pour himself out for the sake of others, that's God the shepherd. The one who works for the good of others, even to the cost of himself. And his followers, especially those who would lead his movement, are to live like that. I think Peter's probably remembering that conversation. It's resonating. It's ringing in his ears still as he addresses the leaders here in this text. It says, not for selfish gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over them. He says, lead by example, lead out of that space. And then he gives them a promise. He says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, a crown in the ancient world was a, a way of displaying honor. It could be in, in military honors, political settings. It could be in sports. And it's a wreath that's, you know, an olive wreath. Guess how long that's going to last? Well, but as long as your Mother's Day flowers will. Okay? It's not. It's not going to last long. It's, it's a fading kind of glory and honor. And he says there's, there's a glory that will never fade away. Joel Green says it well. He says this, Peter underscores his claim that rejection and vilification among humans. Remember, that's what we looked at last week. You're going to follow Jesus. You will be rejected and vilified in your world. He says it's, it's rendered inconsequential by God's recognition of and reward for faithful service. I recently heard a story about a piano player who did a concert at Carnegie Hall, and I have no idea if it's true, so let's just call it a parable. Take it as a parable. might be true. I don't know. But after the performance, the crowd loses their mind. The piano player is walking off stage, and the crowd is in this enraptured, standing ovation, and they are chanting, we want more. I, I've never been to a concert, a, 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 a classical concert that ends like that, but this one did apparently. Uh, 
And the manager, piano player sitting in the backstage, and people are chanting for him, come back, we want more. The manager says, why don't you go and play another song? And the piano player looks out, and he points. And there's one person, only one man, still sitting in the front row. He says, until he stands, I'm not playing. But the man sitting in the front row was his piano teacher. He's playing for only one person. There's only one person's approval that matters to this piano player. He can impress everybody else, but it doesn't matter to him. Peter is saying that those who are shepherds of God's flock play for his approval only. How incredibly freeing. God's leaders, they are secure in the knowledge of God's recognition. They have a God-gifted status, even when it leaves them at the bottom of the, bo of the barrel, socially speaking. I think this connects for all of us at some level. Notice the leaders are said to be examples of how the community is to live. This means everything that's just been said about the leaders, about motives, about serving, about using our God-given power to lift others up, that's applicable to the whole community, actually. And the promise is there for everyone. So this text, it's actually far less concerned with church structure than we might be geared to hear. Yes, some have a specific duty of caring for the well-being of the church, but we all together make up the body of Christ, and all together we are an outpost of hope for the world called to live like this. So if you're a parent, here's maybe a take-home. If you're a parent, you can't farm out your shepherding role to somebody else. Yes, the broader church community, we're a village, we're raising people together, uh, we work together in that, but you can't abdicate your responsibility to be shepherds to your children. Mother's Day, Father's Day, these are shepherding roles too, actually. If you're a life group leader, yes, you know, you're being overseen by the, the leadership of the church, but you too have a shepherding role for those people that you are called to care for and, and provide a context for learning and growing. You too have a responsibility of shepherding. Essentially, the, the elders, those entrusted for the care of the community, are to humbly serve God's people. And then it says those who are younger, it almost certainly means younger in the faith, not necessarily in age. They are told to submit to their elders. Now, this isn't blind submission. Peter has just outlined the sort of shepherding that elders in the community are to provide. It's a recognition that some people have a responsibility, that elders have a responsibility, and that it's a willingness to follow the example of Christ-likeness that the leaders display. I like how Douglas Webster puts it. He says, self-serving authority and self-centered autonomy are challenged by Peter's call for mutual humility. Then Peter reminds everyone in the community, he says, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So the question Peter has for you and me today is, what are you wearing? What, what garment have you put on today? What's your uniform? That's Peter's question. Imagine an airline host they are wearing an unmistakable outfit, right? I mean, those bright colors and weird sashes and like things around your neck, like you know this person is an airline host. You know that they are there to serve, to serve your needs and your safety. Uniforms create expectations. 
But remember too, that airline host is there to serve you crackers, yes, but also to save your life. They are highly trained. They have a special role actually in, in ensuring the safety of travelers, especially when everything goes wrong. Humility isn't a lack of skill. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of responsibility. It's actually all of those things. But it's set without self-centeredness. It's about using all those things for the good of others. When Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples that, during that Holy Week time, we read that he took off his outer robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus wears a garment of a household servant, and then he begins washing his disciples' feet. This act says, my role is for your well-being. And Jesus washes Peter's feet that day, and you know there's an interaction between the two, and I think that image of what Jesus is wearing is burned in Peter's mind at this point, and he's saying, that's what you and I, all of us, are to look like. The God of the universe stoops down to wash feet. And then he says, if you want to get in touch with reality, that's how you are to live as well. That's what Peter envisions here, all of you. Put on that uniform, the uniform of humility. Now, in the ancient world, honor and shame were the north and south poles of all social life. You did everything you could to increase your honor and everything you could to avoid being shamed. I'm not sure our world is so different. And yet the gospel calls us to think totally different than that. The word Peter uses for humility here, it's actually a compound of two words. The first, tapenos, means lowly or humble. But the second part of it is phroneo, and that's an attitude of mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a pattern of thinking and feeling and acting. So this means that the, the attitude that we're to carry, the way we think about ourselves and even our dispositions, our feelings inside of us, are one that says, I'm ready to serve. Every single Christian, the elder, the younger, all of us are to put on this one single uniform, that of a household servant. It means we're asking the question, every time you're in contact with someone else, how can I serve you? Just, can you see that? Could you see what sort of community that would build if every single person were essentially wearing the uniform of a servant? It would undermine any posturing for position, for any aboveness. It would create a true sense of oneness within the household of believers. Now, in the first section, humility is a chosen posture. It's the opposite of self-seeking. It says, I want to lift you up and seek your good. And Peter then borrows from the Old Testament to tell us why. He says, all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because, and then he quotes Proverbs 3.34, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble or to the lowly. You want to experience the opposition of God in your life? Keep yourself your agenda, your ego at the center. You want to know the favor of God resting on you? Take on this other-centered, servant attitude, heart and mind. We also need to know that prior to the early Christian movement, within the Greco-Roman world, this language of humility was only and ever applied to slaves. Never in the ancient world do you see the world tapenos used of anyone except a slave. And now Peter grabs it and says, that's all of us. 
in that world, the lowly, this is a quote from Joel Green, the lowly are objects of antagonism, not esteemed. But Christians are slaves, slaves of God. That's 1 Peter 2, 16. That is who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. So lowly is an appropriate descriptor. But here's the key. What is more, if the apportioning of honor is God's prerogative, then worldly conventions are neutralized. The social order has been rewritten. The rules of the world no longer apply. You can get off that treadmill. Isn't that good news? You don't have to fight to be above others. You don't have to fight to be off the bottom. You choose it. You choose to serve. In a world that values going up and looking bigger, being seen as, as special, as exceptional, this might sound startling to our ears, but remember, this is what God is like. God comes down out of love for you and me. He robes himself in a servant's garment and says, I'm going to serve you all the way to the grave and back out of love for you. Do the same. And that fact forms the basis for part two, accepting our status, our humble status. See, when, when Peter uses the next phrase, he says this, so it goes like, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We need to know that this is actually pretty tricky to translate. Um, see, the form of the verb that Peter uses here for humble, it's an imperative. That means it's a command. Do this. Humble, okay? But it's also in the passive voice, which is super weird, because essentially that means you're not the active agent. Passive means you're the recipient of the action. For example, I throw active voice. I am thrown. Whoa. Passive voice. <laughs> Someone else is the actor. I throw is the active. I do the action. I am thrown. That's passive. Someone else is acting on me. I humble myself. Active voice. That's what you see in verse 5. I am humbled by something or someone else. That's the passive voice. The word passive is or the word humble is passive in verse 6. In verse 5, you clothe yourself in humility, that's a chosen action. Active voice. I am humbled. Verse 6, passive. So maybe it's best to translate like this. Accept your humble status under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So humility in verse 6 is about a lowly position, yes, but it's one that's assigned to us by the wider world. And he says, accept it. That's a part of God's call on you, under God's mighty hand. We've already read in this letter that because of the, our commitment to Jesus, believers will at times face insult. The question that Peter raises and the answer is, how will we interpret this Mis mistreatment, this unfairness. Like, how will we respond when mistreated? And I have a quote here. I took it out of my notes, but I'm going to read it from the screen because I think it's just worth it anyways. With respect to the wider Roman world, the status, this is speaking of believers, in the court of public opinion, the jury is already in. Christians are disgraced as social deviants. The choice left to Peter's audience of believers then is how to respond, how to reg render uh, ignominy Meaningful, that means a sense of, um, I've got it in my notes here. What does that mean? It means being pushed down, this sense of, um, of, of being a deviant and outside of the regular life. With his reference to humility, under the mighty hand of God, Peter identifies God as the arbiter of status. 
thus redefining the basis on which high status might be granted. We sing a song that goes like this, I am who you say I am. That's what Peter's getting at here. Like, follow Jesus and you will be assigned a humble status by those around you. You will. Accept that, knowing that God redefines you. In fact, the mighty hand of God will lift you up in due time. So which voice matters for you? Who are you playing for? And this is really Peter's concern. Will you fold like a lawn chair as soon as it becomes difficult to follow Jesus? Biblical scholar Karen Jobes, she says it well. The command to be humbled under God's mighty hand is a command to accept, though not seek, difficult circumstances as a part of God's deliverance. Neither railing against God, why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? nor raging against those causing the difficulty, but rather blessing those who insult you and injure you. So how do you read the situation? How do we respond? Well, the answer comes in a tight set of commands. First, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. The eyes of God are locked onto his children, and his heart is toward the lowly. Within the context of this little letter, Peter is specifically dealing with the anxieties that come from living the Christian life in a hostile world. As Douglas Webster says, the anxiety Peter has in mind is the, the worry generated by chronic and pervasive hostility directed against the messianic community. Peter gathers up all that anxiety and challenges believers to cast it on the Lord, to trust his sovereign and protective care. All the concerns that you might have right now, maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe in your workplace, you don't really want to be known as a Christian person. Yeah, all the assumptions that people carry with them. Maybe it's the way in your class, like, do I want to speak up or do I not? Peter says God cares for you. You can entrust those anxieties to him. He will sustain you. That's a great promise. But of course, those anxieties, that doesn't negate the fact that God cares about every aspect of your life as well. Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 6, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, where you're going to live. God takes care of that. He's your father. He loves you. You can entrust yourself to him. And because you're doing that, you can get on with, well, but seek first the kingdom of God, his ways, his righteousness, and all of these things. He's going he's gonna to take care of your needs as well. Back to that image of a shepherd. Sheep won't drink at fast-moving water. So the shepherd would have, either have to take his, his sheep and find a quiet place, or he's going to have to get in there, move rocks around, and dam it up so he creates a quiet place for his sheep to come. The picture there is, is of, of a God who cares for your needs, who will take care of every single one of them. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. You can trust him. But if you haven't noticed yet, Peter essentially says that God delivers us in our trials, not from our trials. Even in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me, says the psalm writer. The enemies are still there. They're still saying the things that enemies say, and yet you care for me, lovingly feeding me. God is my shepherd. So what's stressing you out this week? What are your worries? 
Jesus says your, your heavenly father knows all of them. You can trust him. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. Here's the second thing Peter says. Be alert and of sober mind. He reminds us that there is a spiritual dynamic at play. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Notice, your enemy ultimately is the embodiment of evil. This is a spiritual figure who is opposed to God, God's purposes, and God's people. That's why we don't wage war on people. We recognize that our true enemy is in the spiritual realm. And that's why this command to be alert and of sober mind is so key. Notice both of those are thinking words. Here's why this matters. See, the roaring lion, that suggests intimidation. Now, I'm not a particular fan of like fighting sports, you know, boxing or MMA, but I've seen enough clips of that moment where they like bring the two fighters together before the match and they're like right up in each other's faces and and, and often they're using this moment to intimidate the other, to cast doubt on their, their abilities. There's often arrogant gestures and arrogant words intended to generate fear in the other. Because when we're afraid of something, we're not going to perform very well. So in fighting or any competition, there's this huge psychological factor at play. And Peter says, think. Think about it. If you don't engage your mind, you're going to get swept away in this. Don't be intimidated. You remember the first time that the enemy shows up in, in the Bible stories in Genesis 3? It says that, that the enemy says to Adam and Eve, it leads them to doubt God's truthfulness. Did he really say? Are you sure about that? He casts doubt on the goodness and love of God, and they fall for it. Peter says, don't. Think about it. Engage your mind in this. And that's why he says next, uh, resist him, standing firm in the faith. And then Peter gives us some key ways how to do that, how, how we think about this. First, Peter reminds them and us, he says, it's not just you. The worst thing is not going through trials or, or, or painful experiences. The worst thing is going through trials or painful experiences alone. That's the worst Peter says, you are not alone. The family of faith throughout the world are undergoing this same kind of suffering. Remember that. We are created for community. We are created to walk together. And never is that more important than when we're in trouble. A big part of this standing firm then is remembering you're not alone. It's, it's remembering that you need to be together with other believers. It might be at a life group or, or youth or young adults. Worshiping together like this every week. These matter because they tell us that although we might feel alone at our workplace, though you might feel like you're the only person following Jesus walking through your halls this week, you're not. Look up. Look around. We walk together. Second thing, we can't possibly keep living in a situation of pressure if there's no end in sight, if we think our suffering is limitless. And so Peter says this, and the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered, underline, a little while. 
He himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. How we view our, our, our future, that radically changes our experience of the middle part, the part we're in right now. When you know there is a limit to the suffering, it's not going on forever, you can endure it. And the third thing, we can stand firm in the faith when we know the faithfulness of God. Let me rephrase that, when we know the God who is the faithful one. Our vision of God, who we believe God to be, that changes everything of how we thrive, even in the presence of pressure. Peter focuses on the character traits of God as mighty and merciful. The background of everything that we've heard today is that God is the strong one. He, he has the power to lift you up. You, you don't have to be afraid. I, I think of that intimidated thing. Imagine there's a, a young boy or girl and they're on the, on the playground and there's a, a group of bullies and this person and they're like, what do I do? And I stand firm there. And all of a sudden the bullies, their faces drop and they back away. And this person thinks, wow, that's interesting. Their dad just walked up behind them. <laughs> okay, the mighty one is with you. So don't be intimidated. That matters. And do you believe it? Will you trust that God has you? Because if it's true, then you can follow the one who says you will be humbled. You will in the world. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to melt down. You don't need to posture for a position. You don't need to defend your honor because I will honor you as my beloved. I'm guessing some of us need to hear that again today. Remember again what we are shown here. Think about these things, Peter says. This is why I read scripture every day, even if it's only for a short period of time and encourage you to do the same. Maybe it's just picking up like one small piece but I read it to remember what's ultimately true about God. I'm going to call the worship team forward at this point. And just as they come, I want, I want to just paint for you. Maybe you can just close your eyes and just paint this image again that Peter leaves us with in our text. The image is of, of, of a mighty, merciful God who is a good shepherd. And this good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's the God who takes on humanity and dresses himself in the garment of a household servant to wash your feet. The reason we can, all of us, clothe yourselves in humility is because we have a God who steps down, who lets his life break for our healing and then calls us to live like that for the other. The reason we can accept our humble position in the world and resist the enemy onslaught is because we know that Jesus died in order to disarm the powers of evil and was raised again in victory. This gives us a deep sense of security in God's love so that we can love and serve even those who mistreat us. The story ends in victory. Jesus washes our feet and then says, do this for each other. So our question today is, what are we wearing? What are you wearing? May it be that each day we clothe ourselves in humility. We make the decision to dress in the uniform of a person whose aim is to serve the needs of those around me. Lord God, we ask that you would make that true of us. Each of us, 
that we as a community would be shaped by that story of self-giving love, knowing that God will lift us up. Amen.